collective thinking can make new ways of thinking visible to a much wider audience. And annotation is the key that unlocks that opportunity. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Remy Kallir. Remy is Associate Professor of Learning Design and Technology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and a leading scholar of annotation. He is co-author of the book, Annotation, published by MIT Press, and many journal articles on the subject. Remy is also Scholar-in-Residence at Hypothesis and the co-founder of Marginal Syllabus. You can find more on his work at remikalia.com, that's R-E-M-I-K-A-L-I-R, and on Twitter at at In this episode, Remy shares valuable insights on social annotation, self-curation, the connective tissue of ideas, annotation tools, nuance for synthesis, and far more. Keep listening to learn from his great insights. Remy, it's awesome to have you on the show. Oh, Ross, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. So you are a scholar of annotation. I want to know more about that. What is annotation? Absolutely. Well, let me begin by saying, Ross, that you, you're an annotator. You, Ross, are an annotator. I, and I, I, I know that without even knowing the nuances of your practice, but I know that you read. And I yes. know that when you read, you probably make your thinking visible. I know that when you read, you take notes. And it's very likely that, Ross, when you were in school or for pleasure on a couch, reading poetry, wherever it may be, you're probably marking up a book or you're probably taking notes in some kind of way. And if you're listening to this podcast, you also probably have a personal history with annotation. And one of the things that I find fascinating about the practice of annotation is that people are annotators. When people read, they are writing. When they are reading, they are thinking. They are making connections. And that has to be made visible in some way. And so that gets to that core definition of what is annotation. It's the addition of a note to a text. It's that simple. You add a note to a text. So we might do that when we read books. And again, for so many of us, we've done that in formal educational settings, schools, universities, maybe when we were very young, maybe when we were older. So many of us have personal histories of adding notes to texts, of being annotators. And of course, we also do that in much more sophisticated ways now. We do that in digital environments. We do that with all kinds of 
fancy online tools. At the very core, at the kind of basic definition of that, we're adding notes to texts as we engage with media, as we engage with information, as we try and navigate information overload. And so I know you're an annotator, Ross. I'm an annotator too. And if you're listening to this, you're probably also an annotator. And I find that to be very fascinating. We'll definitely want to dig into that in all sorts of angles. But one, one point is you also talk about social annotation and love to uh, hear about that. Well, so that's an important distinction. And, and thank you for making that, which is that for many of us, let's say we are reading a book of poetry, or maybe we're reading something online. We can mark that up. We can add our notes to that text in a private way. And in fact, much marginalia, if you want to use that term, a lot of book marginalia is private. It's written only for us. It's written for an audience of one. And yet we can also make our annotation social. We can share it. We can use, again, either a book lent to a friend, or we can use a whole variety of digital and online tools to make our marginal notes accessible to other people. And there's a whole genre now of not only technologies, but also practices that allow us to share our thinking with other people. And we can do so to appreciate different perspectives. We can do so to disagree. We can do so to build consensus. But social annotation is a practice. It's an opportunity to make those cognitive processes, to make those social processes more connected as we read together as we think together, as we make sense of the world together. And again, another reason why I find social annotation a very promising practice, both in and outside of schools and other kinds of learning institutions. So one particular example of that is that uh, you are co-author of the book Annotation, and I believe the process of writing the book involved social annotation. It did. It did. We had to really walk the talk, so to speak. And so when my co-author, a dear friend, my colleague, Ontario Garcia from Stanford University, when we wrote the book, we came up with our draft and you know, we're not thinking alone. We're not doing this work in isolation. And so we wrote up a draft of the entire book and we used a particularly agile, um, intuitive platform that actually comes from MIT, our, our publisher. It's called the PubPub platform. And so we put the whole book there. We said, hey, smart people, thoughtful people, people who disagree with us, hey, come read this draft of our book. And you know, this social annotation process can be very nuanced. We can find a word or a phrase or a particular argument. We can highlight it. We can add commentary. We can reply. And we generated literally I think something like 20,000 words worth, the word count volume of the annotations was an incredible corpus of rich feedback and commentary shared to us, shared openly, shared in a way that other people could reference. It left a trail of thinking on that initial draft of the book. And we took all of that information back along with more formal, we might say, and more conventional anonymous peer review. We had two processes going side by side. We took all that information, we sifted through it, we synthesized it, and we revised our writing. It was, of course, improved and strengthened. The, the, the crux of our book was really, really helpfully moved along the way because of that social annotation process. And so it's part of our work as well. It's part of our workflow. If we're going to talk about it, we need to do it ourselves. So, so one distinction, I think, is between, I suppose, accepting uh, text, you know, highlighting, for example, highlighting either with a highlighter in a physical book or by copying a block of, you know, 
noting in a Kindle or printing a text or, you know, and I think that's akin on a, on a large level to social bookmarking where you might just say, okay, well, here's an article and I'll just make a note of that. Whereas the annotation is when you're actually saying something about it. I agree, I disagree, or, or to make some more points around that. So just like to sort of dig into for, I suppose, you know, and somebody who's trying to think about how they access information and build that into knowledge, you know, that distinction between either taking highlighting, I suppose, or you know, I'd love to know, you know, what language you might use around that, mm-hmm. highlighting mm-hmm. versus active notes, which which add to what is there. Highlighting is a really important entry, what I would say, entry point into a richer repertoire of annotation practices. Highlighting is actually, I wouldn't say controversial, um, but there's mixed evidence, I should say. I, I should say, I'm a researcher, you know, day to day, I'm a scholar, I read a lot of peer reviewed research. There's actually pretty mixed evidence about the cognitive benefits of highlighting. And I won't get into all of the studies, but there are some recently you know, looking at undergraduate students, for example, who highlight course texts and then take quizzes and their subsequent academic achievement. The, the evidence is rather mixed about whether just highlighting alone is a particularly effective cognitive strategy. Okay. However, in my world, it is one of a repertoire of annotation practices. We can, of course, highlight texts, but then, of course, we can also take those highlights and we can transit them into other kinds of notes, other kinds of annotations, including those that spark dialogue or that allow us to confirm maybe that a particular interpretation is more or less accurate or that we might be highlighting an instance of bias, again, or disagreement, or we have a wondering, or maybe we're highlighting because there's a disciplinary method, maybe in the sciences, Maybe there's a particular type of rhetorical argument in learning about how to analyze essays that we're curious about. And so whether we're, again, in a course and we're a learner and we're interacting with our peers or we're reading something else, maybe with colleagues and we're just doing something like a a book club, but it's digital and it can be about sharing our notes together. The highlighting is a starting point, but it can lead to much richer dialogue And that's where the knowledge construction and the deeper synthesis of ideas begins to happen. So let's uh, let's pull back to a user who's never heard of annotation. They obviously know what highlighting is. But framing this around, you know, I I call it knowledge development. You call it knowledge construction. You know, the idea is, okay, we've got lots of information. Information is disinformation. And so this idea, you know, how do we actively build that into our own knowledge? So are there any practices or tools or starting points that you would suggest for somebody to start to do this, do a more active annotation in the uh, aim of knowledge development? Absolutely. I mean, I think that in this respect, a really good place to start is with your own self-curation, which is that we'd like to write a lot. And I think that one of the critiques actually of annotation is that it's too messy, that there's too much of it, that it's just scribbling or it's defacing a book or it kind of is inherently a, a transgressive act because we shouldn't write on the things that we read. Um, and I understand that. I can appreciate that. But when I say self-curation, it's important to speak back to a text and maybe just underline a few notes here. Maybe it's important to say, you know, ha, or I disagree, or I wonder, or leave little question marks or leave little arrows or smiley faces, almost like emoji. 
You know, those kinds of symbols have been appearing in texts for hundreds of years. So having said that, if we look back at a kind of corpus of annotation, we'll find that there are maybe a handful, a handful of rough draft thoughts that can become then much deeper, more developed ways of thinking about a text. This is where the meaning-making process occurs. So if I spend an hour reading a text and I've written all over it, many, 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 many notes in many, many different kinds of ways, if I return to that text at another point in time, I might find that there's just three or four that continue to speak to me, that continue to resonate with me. And I can then curate those. Maybe I move them into another document. Maybe they inform subsequent writing. Maybe those are the types of notes that get shared socially as opposed to that remain private. So there's all kinds of ways in which as a first step, whether we're writing by hand or writing on a computer digitally, that we can return to our own note-taking and annotation practices and select those that remain resonant, select those that remain powerful to our thinking, and that inform subsequent work, inform the subsequent kind of you know, writing, thinking, more deeper production, again, of knowledge that is important for whatever the, the, the kind of work that we're doing. So that's the first step, I think. Curate what you've annotated. So, so I suppose one frame around this is saying, you know, annotation happens on a particular document. You that's know, right. Be that a book or a blog post or whatever it may be. But these may be in the context of developing knowledge in a particular domain. Or you might want to learn more about diabetes or around you know, the edge of artificial intelligence or all sorts of topics, in which case you have a whole set of different texts which you are annotating. So how do you then pull these together to build understanding around a topic where there's multiple texts involved? That's right. Well, this is a good point, Ross, because now we're talking about annotation not just being tethered to an individual text. We're really talking about annotation being the connective tissue or what some people have referred to as the associative trails across multiple texts. Now, if we imagine a library full of books and we can imagine our notes inside those books on shelves, it's hard to imagine how those all get connected. And yet, actually for, again, hundreds of years, thinkers and scholars have tried to imagine ways in which those notes become associated with one another and how across a domain we can bring that thinking together in new ways. And of course, computational methods have helped with that incredibly. And so even in the last few decades now, we're seeing great strides in that. There's a tool that I happen to use. It's called Hypothesis. It's an open source um, web annotation technology. It's free. Anyone can use it and it can mark up and write on the entire web. And that is one technical approach to finding a way in which wherever my notes may live across whatever kinds of documents, blog posts, primary source literature, news articles, e-reading platforms, open textbooks, you know, individual correspondences, whatever that may be, the historical record, if it's digital, it's living online, if it's on the web, I'm now not just annotating a single document, I'm using an annotation platform it allows me to bring all of my thinking across all of those documents and all of my annotations together in one place. And again, I can choose to make those private just to me. I can choose to share those with other people, but it turns annotations from an isolated marginal comment into the connective tissue, those associative trails across all of my reading, across all of my thinking, 
And that allows me to then dig much deeper, as you said, particularly into domain-specific topics that require that kind of synthesis. Well, I, I want to just briefly diverge and just say, well, that uh, sounds very much like the concept of the global brain, where you know the all of the thinking of individuals coalesces into a higher-order thought structure. Is does that resonate? It does. It does resonate. And this is where, again, I think that we find collaborative reading and writing technologies to provide glimpses of that. And so we could say that in this respect, platforms, even like Wikipedia, where you have multiple individuals reading together, editing together, curating knowledge in rather sophisticated ways, although the platform is certainly not perfect and has you know, some documented you know, issues, but nonetheless, it is a record, a visual record of people reading and then writing together. And I think that we see other examples of that in annotation and annotation platforms can serve as one type of that, where the collective thinking of either a crowd, but also in some cases, very highly trained expert communities can make new ways of thinking visible, accessible, and then really actionable to a much wider audience. And annotation is the key that unlocks that opportunity. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com course to find out more. Now back to the show. So in the in the West, we have fairly recently seen Zettelkasten become very trendy. Yes, We've sure. We've had uh, Rome Research become a Rome cult and Obsidian and LogSec and other tools. I mean, these all fall into what I call connected note-taking. Yes. So this this is uh, perhaps adjacent. It's not sort of a squarely thing, but these are the tools which many people are using to be able to coalesce what they find how the connections they see between them. So how do these kinds of tools relate to what, you know, what you're describing in terms of annotation and social annotation? In some cases, there's quite a bit of overlap. And so I'm, of course, also quite interested in those note-taking histories, because you mentioned Zettelkasten and many other kind of methods around note-taking. And in some cases, people are moving their notes off of a primary source. And this is where, again, it might not be appropriate or possible even to write on the text itself. And so they need to have a commonplace book or some other kind of you know, individual note-taking device, be it again, written by hand or online in some form, Rome being a great example of that, where notes can be curated, sifted through, where they can be used to be essentially remixed into other forms of writing, and they can you know, aid in productivity workflows. And I appreciate that. And I understand that there is great value in that, often for individuals and often for individuals who are pursuing a particular line of inquiry. I myself have my own kind of, dare I say, bespoke note-taking practices where I like to jot my own notes. When I'm talking about annotation, both in my work as a researcher, but also in my teaching, remember, I'm a, I'm a university professor. I teach classes. I have students. I know that people are reading together. So there's a little bit of a shift in purpose here between you, Ross, picking up a book or finding a 
you know, primary source literature or even a peer-reviewed article individually, and you reading about a particular topic that you're fascinated in, macroeconomics, developments in political theory, whatever it happens to be, and you then taking your own notes wherever and however you do that. And the difference in purpose that I often find in my work, which is I have a group of, let's say, 20 students. These are master's level or doctoral level students. And we're going to read an article that explains a particular methodology germane to our field. And we're going to read it together. And we have some shared learning objectives. But we also know that our note-taking might move us in slightly individual directions. But we have a common starting point, And we're also reading together. And in that context, for that purpose, that's where social annotation for me is particularly useful because I want that thinking to be made visible to the group. I want people to be reading together and then responding to one another. And I want us to be collectively making sense of that primary source. And so there is then, again, some overlap with some of the work that people are doing around commonplaces that'll cost in individual note-taking, Rome, et cetera. Again, often for individual productivity. And much of the work that I do, which is we're a group, either we're, again, like a book club or we're a formal course at a university or we're a group of educators participating in professional learning who are collectively working to make sense of common resources, common texts to move our thinking forward. Even if some of that is individually oriented, the group activity is part of what brings us all together. And what what tools do you use for that? So again, hypothesis has become a particularly useful tool because it's free, because it's open, because it works across a variety of, again, education-specific platforms, but it happens to just live online on the web. There are also a number of other, I think, promising social annotation platforms out there that are bringing people together. I spent a lot of time working with primary and secondary educators, K-12 education. There's a really nice annotation tool called Now Comment that has become particularly useful. Um, you know, you've mentioned social bookmarking tools as well. Digo, of course, has a long and rich history. And there are others that have been, I think, particularly generative um, in the formal educational space. But this is where I try not to be too prescriptive about what tools people pick up, because at the end of the day, it's about the social practices. How do you want to be reading and thinking and writing and collectively making sense of this stuff? with other people. And if you want to do it with other people, let's figure out what those practices are and then choose tools that meet our needs. So do you use or have any thoughts around visual tools? I mean, for example, there are various plugins for Rome and Obsidian, which give network representations of connections between ideas. Um, the brain is is arguably, you know, uses, you know, essentially mind map connections. Uh, and there's also concept mapping, of course, Yes. to be able to you know, show concepts and the relationships between them. Yes. So do you use any visual thought mapping tools or do you uh, have any thoughts on that? I do. I have a few of my own. Actually, I'm, uh, I should say colleagues with a number of folks who've developed some of these, these tools as well to do this higher level thinking where you now are starting to establish associations between notes and resources, create broader categories of information, think about, again, common themes. And I think that that approach, particularly in visual ways, is extremely helpful. And the starting point are those initial rough draft thinking, that initial rough draft set of annotations. And so we need to, first of all, 
create all this stuff. Again, this goes back to my earlier comments about kind of curating even one's own reading and one's own initial annotations. It's very important to have a corpus of rough draft thoughts to begin with. And then whether those are mine or yours, Ross, or a group of people's notes, those can then all get put into other kinds of programs, you know, other kinds of, again, visual representational tools. And there are, again, a few that I happen to appreciate and, and use where you can literally, without getting too technical, essentially export digital content into other applications. And then you can begin to remix those and say, which of these notes connects to one another? Which of these notes are useful to kind of pair in a group? How do this particular set of comments help us to think more deeply about this particular question, this particular problem? And so I'm a huge fan of that. And I think that there are some more, in this case, visually oriented, higher order thinking tools that can be used in this way, whether again, individuals are doing it or, or groups are doing it. And again, the question becomes, where do you start with that process? Well, you probably start by adding notes to text so that you can even do that work in the first. And what tools uh, do you use or do you think are worth looking at? There's one in particular that is, in this case, rather more academically oriented. It's actually the acronym is FROG. It's coming out of a group of researchers that are kind of combining the open annotation affordances of hypothesis with some other, again, visual platforms. And I have a colleague, Bodong Chen, recently uh, of the University of Minnesota, it's now off to Penn, uh, and his research team and colleagues who've kind of put this together. It's again, it's pretty education specific, and you need to have a few technical chops. But if you're using, in this particular case, hypothesis to do that kind of openly networked social annotation, you can then move your annotations into this separate application and then really participate in some very interesting work that helps to extend that beyond a collection of texts still working at a group level to make that higher order thinking possible as you move into other kinds of, again, knowledge construction activities like essay writing or textual analysis. So, so this all goes to, you know, I, I, I describe synthesis as a, you know, a human superpower. What, mm. what distinguishes mm -hmm. humans perhaps more than anything else? Our idea to ability to pull together disparate ideas uh, into something which is cohesive and makes sense and enables us to act effectively in a complex world. So in addition to anything that we've you know, already discussed or, or perhaps to pull that some of these themes together, I mean, what are ways that you or you, know, you think that we can assist ourselves in that endeavor of being better synthesizers? I think that's a really powerful question, Ross. So first of all, th thanks for asking. It's, I, I, I think of two things when I think of the ability to be better synthesizers. One is nuance. I think it's really important, particularly in today's information environment, whether we're talking about the challenges of accurate information, conspiracy theory, just a general kind of trying to find the signal through the noise, as I'm sure you know, you're aware of that catchphrase. It's really important to, to, to act with nuance, to read with nuance, to think about details specifically. And again, this is where annotation allows us to identify particular points of a text, particular aspects of an argument, even to the level of a character, certainly a word. We can say, here's where I see evidence of this. Here's where I understand this argument building. Here's the, the year, the citation. We need to cite our sources. We need to have very careful citational practices. And that level of nuance, I think, can be aided in our, in our work of annotation. So to actually move into synthesis, we can't start from a level that is already too abstract, right? We can't just try and synthesize big ideas and have 
more important insight from that if we're not really attentive to all of those small building blocks, all the little bits of nuance, all of those bites of information that provide the strong foundation for our work. If we don't have that strong foundation, if we don't have that nuance, we're not going to move to a point of synthesis. That's the first big point I want to make. And for me, again, practices of annotation allow me to be very nuanced in going back to information, finding particular aspects of a quote, an argument of evidence. I think the second big point I want to make, though, in terms of working towards synthesis then, is being able to then take a step back and have a tool and a practice that allows us to make associations. Once we have all that nuance, once we have all the evidence, once we have our corpus of information, we need a good point of connection. We need an easy way, an intuitive way, a way that we can easily say A connects to B, and A then connects also to C. And maybe there's a tenuous connection here. We need to be able to make those networks and we need to be able to, again, make them visible for ourselves. If we don't have a connective practice, if we don't habitually have some way of drawing associations, whether it's visually or it's using a text-based platform, if that's not a habit, then again, it's going to be very hard for us to move into patterns of synthesis and into making those kind of broader insights about the work that we do. And connection making, although people say that humans are, you know, pattern recognition machines, if we don't practice that, it's actually, it gets pretty rusty. And it doesn't allow us to then make more sophisticated connections over time. And so we also need to make those kinds of connections habitual. And that means, again, that we need tools and we need practices. And this, again, without getting too kind of jargony here, this is where academic literature tells us, shows us, there's strong evidence of this, my work speaks to this, that knowledge construction practices can be learned, they can be identified, they can be built upon. Whether that means identifying points of bias, working through disagreement, building consensus, asking questions, those are connections that we can habitually learn to make. If we do that over time, we can work towards deeper levels of synthesis. We can create those deeper insights in our work. And so just to quickly like summarize, like we need to have that nuance and we also need to have those connections. And those are both habitual practices that we can, as thinkers, as readers, as writers, develop over time. If, uh, if there's just a, a few reference of those references that uh, you'd like to share with us, we'll put them in the show notes we'll because we'll um, I, I certainly want to dig into deeper and I'm sure that uh, some of my listeners will as well. Uh, that's not something you can necessarily uh, cover off in a in a quick conversation in a sure, podcast. Sure, we can do, of course. So to, to round out, I mean, this uh, the topic is thriving on overload, which is something I think you and uh, you, you do and you assist your students to do. And would you, could you summarize just a few top of mind recommendations, to-dos, ways in which people in a wash with information can... Uh, pull that together to be on top of that, to feel that they are prospering in that world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, read, read slowly. You know, the first thing I've done in my courses, particularly with my students over the past few years is really eliminate the volume of what we read. I want us to read more deeply. I want us to read more deeply and I want us to read a, just a, a fewer, you know, whether it's books, texts, articles, whatever it is, just really winnowing down. First of all, the, the amount of information that we read so that we can read more slowly. Um, and then as we read, again, it's nice to read together. 
when we read alone, there is a lot to be gained, and it can be very personally meaningful, but the benefits of reading socially are incredible, and the benefits of reading together with other people to check bias, to remind us of perspectives that we might not have considered, to think more deeply about questions that we might not have asked. That happens when we read socially. And so that's the second opportunity, I think, for, you know, just to, how do we thrive on information overload? Like, well, we can read with other people because they can kind of keep us in check and remind us of why we're reading perhaps this in the first place. And then as, you know, a third recommendation as we've been talking about is having really robust note-taking practices. And again, if that's going to be more individually oriented with a commonplace book, a Zellicostin, whatever it may be, um, or you're taking notes with other people as a form of discussion and conversation, having a robust uh, you know, annotation practice can, again, be a really helpful way of, of thriving on information overload. But reduce the volume, read with other people, and have a robust note-taking and annotation practice. That's a really nice recipe for thriving on information overload. That's fantastic. I mean, I think that's, that's very distinctive. Uh, as a set of recommendations that I think extraordinarily val- extraordinarily valuable. So thank you so much for your time and your insights, Remy. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Oh, Ross, again, you're so welcome. I hope that listeners find this helpful. There's so much information out there. Again, I'll share some resources and people, of course, can follow my work, but um, I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.